Welcome to the Platform to Perform podcast, the podcast for athletes, coaches, and anyone looking to perform at their highest level. If performance is your goal, we aim to provide you with the platform to perform. I'm your host as always, Todd Davidson, and on today's episode, I have a part two with sporting psychologist enthusiast, UEFA B football coach and PE teacher, George Green. Now, this was only meant to be the end of episode one. However, we went off on a bit of a tangent, and here is part two. In today's episode, we discuss the importance of reading outside your field for enhancing your performance within your chosen field. We talk about how to become better informed about a subject that lies outside of your knowledge expertise, and we finish off by talking about skill acquisition between different combat sports. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Here is part two with George Green. Sorry, buddy, there was somebody at the door, so I'm hoping we've not just lost the uh, whole previous podcast, but just jumping back into uh, where we started, well, not where we started, but the superstitions versus pre-match routine. It's funny because in my boxing days, I when I made my debut, I wore, like I said, lucky pair of pants, I had these luminous boxer shorts, won my uh, debut fight, so I was like, right, they're lucky, I have to wear them every fight now. Um, won from a second bout, and... Uh, didn't land a punch on the guy until about five seconds into the last round. Um, so it's funny how much can be, how much emphasis can be placed on something so little. I always find that quite amusing. Yeah, and it, it's funny because we attach our our outcomes to these objects, these inanimate objects that have nothing to do with performance, but we feel affect our performance. Um, you know, you'll hear words like even jinx. Uh, like you'll be watching a game of football. Um, you, someone, a family member walks through the door, the opposite team score. Oh, you're a jinx. You're the reason they scored. And it's like, no, that isn't the reason they scored. Um, it has nothing to do with it. But we attach these things to it because it's almost in a way, and I don't want to get too extreme with it, but you could argue maybe there's a little bit of not wanting to take responsibility, maybe not in the jinx scenario, but definitely in the superstition scenario. We don't want to take full responsibility for the outcome. We want to base it on something that has nothing to do with us. It's just an object, and that's the reason, and it makes us feel better about ourselves, and I guess gives us an excuse maybe even psychologically, and I guess that's where some of the best athletes in the world are really good at excuses and they sort of have to be because if they're not good at coming up with an excuse they just won't take the comp same competition again you see it in boxing all the time after a loss they'll have an excuse i mean some of them quite rightfully but more often than not the reason the excuse is said and it comes out of their mouth is it allows them to still feel confident that they're able to achieve success and win the next upcoming bout, whatever it may be. Um, and you see it in sport all the time. There's always excuses. And again, not to say there's no, um, uh, it's not justified, but quite often or not, it's that wanting to di like disregard responsibility and give ourselves confidence that actually we, we can still um, be successful, whatever it may be. Um, and it just it sort of disattaches us from from that, I guess. Um, but yeah, I, 
I see I see so much value in pre-match routine where actually that's linked to performance. It's the same pre-shot routine. Pre-shot routine has a huge impact on sometimes how the outcome of your performance. Johnny Wilkinson's a really good example. I had a lecturer at uni who spoke about how she worked with Johnny Wilkinson, that pre-shot uh, routine he would have where he would bend over, you know, he'd take those slow, big, staggered steps um, before the ball to set himself, have a look. He'd look a certain amount of times at the goalposts, um, stick his arms out, ready, cr cr get into sort of a cradle uh, pose while standing, and then suddenly he would go into the shot. And you'll see it all the time in golf. You'll sometimes see it with footballers taking free kicks, David Beckham being a good one, Ronaldo being a good one. But it's something that's also quite neglected and players don't do enough. And also they're doing it wrong. So when they're doing their pre-shot type routine, they're not actually going through the stages. And it was a lesson actually I did with our my year 10 set one class this year when we were covering psychology. And I took them through pre-shot routines and we were looking at free kicks, penalties. And we went through, right, what are you imagining? And they were always imagining um, just where they want to kick the ball. They were never imagining uh, outcome being the main one. Surely you want to be imagining that this is going in rather than just where you're kicking the ball. Um, and then they weren't going for any pre-shot routines. They put the ball down, decide I'm going to kick it over there, run up to the ball, kick it and hope that it goes in. But there's more you can do to enhance that um, the success rate of it. Because as much as, yes, it's a bit of a luck, does the keeper go my way or not? If you've got a good pre-shot routine, you can, you can uh, plan for that if the keeper goes the right way. Eden Hazard's a good example. Jorginho does it for Chelsea. You know, they'll, they'll look at the keeper. That's part of their pre-shot routine. That isn't something they just did the first time they took a penalty. That was something they built in. And they've got, I mean, that's very high level. They've built it into a point where they're able to look at the keeper all the way until the point of taking the penalty and figure out which way the keeper's going. Sometimes, yeah, they get it wrong. But someone like Eden Hazard, most of the time, is getting it right. And if he's getting it right most of the time, then that's something to emulate. And that falls into pre-shot routine. So these things improve performance along with pre-match routine as well. Yeah, I think a lesser known example, but probably better than both of them, is uh, Abiri Eze, if anyone's seen his penalties for <laughs> Queen's Park Rangers. <laughs> and uh, just, in, just in wrapping up with the questions, if you could spend a period of time with either one coach with their athletes or maybe a PE teacher or um, even, uh, actually, I'll save this question just because there's a couple more that I've noted that I really want uh, your opinion on before yeah. we do wrap things up. The first one is to do with, because we've spoken a lot about gaining experience and knowledge from fields outside of your own, for example, the psychology, uh, working with say, primary school. Um, I read a good blog of yours and it was talking about how tactics in football, um, their origins, I don't know if you can remember the article. Yeah. I can't, I'll draw yeah. the memory. Um, but where do they come, where have they historically come from? And yeah. Um, yeah, so, I mean, in that um, piece that I wrote, I spoke about how obviously it stemmed through war. Um, and again, fortunate enough, I know I've mentioned him before, but my mentor at uni, I remember teaching me a little bit about this and he spoke 
uh, about it and then I went and read up on it and so you'll see a lot of formations in sport that are formations you would see in battles um, and one of the popular ones would be the vanguard uh, and I speak about that in the piece and how that sort of started um, the attacking formations we saw in football in sort of the 50s the 40s um, around then sort of early period of the 20th century um, and it was this idea that being aggressive from the front um, was important to uh, overcoming your enemies or overcoming the opponents um, and that sort of that was where formations began in sport was they would take bits from um, battles from famous battles and look at formations etc and the Hungarian side in the 50s which was a very good side they had a very attacking team and I, I guess football now as much as people think it's very attacking um, it's actually far less attacking than what it was and far less open than what it was um, as much as the likes of City and Liverpool make it look like oh it's it's some of the most attacking football we've seen in years and it's just not it's not more attacking than that period of football that we had in that time um, what happened though and the reason why maybe people think this is from sort of the 70s through to maybe the early 2000s we've seen this more defensive approach come you know you had the sweeper introduced um, Germany and Italy uh, both played with a sweeper um, Brazil played with it Brazil, funny, again, another misconception as we were speaking about them. People saw them as an attacking team. They were the opposite in the era of Pele. Um, they were a defensive side, really. When you look at the formations of teams around them, that period, they had a more defensive formation. Um, but yeah, they went for, a defense, uh, went for a defensive period. And now we're starting to see maybe a little bit more of an attacking period, but it's just not the same as what it was. Um, and so it's interesting to see how you can take things from other fields, other places to, um, to benefit the sport or whatever it may be. And again, uh, I know we spoke about this and it's a little bit off topic, but you know, you're starting to see maybe psychologists come into the game now, come into sport. You're starting to see maybe some business psychologists come into the sport, uh, businessmen, businesswomen <coughs> coming into the sport. Um, and that's to try, you know, you've seen st statisticians come in as well. People who are really good with stats. Brentford employed um, the same uh, people that I think it was the Oakland Athletics in baseball. They employed the same people um, that worked an unbelievable feat in baseball they were never seen as the team to win um the series and they went and won it and that was solely based on stats just people who were really good with numbers mathematicians and it was based on a mathematician's book actually and they ended up employing people who were good with stats good with numbers and knew there'd be a certain amount of players they could get that weren't the best in the league but they were good at getting the numbers they wanted to get in a certain amount of first bases, a certain amount of second base, a certain amount of catches, etc. Um, and then Brentford employed them. And I mean, you're looking at Brentford now, and I think Barnsley have been involved with them as well. But Brentford right now are very close and touch wood. Not that I'm a Brentford fan, but I am a, um, I do want to see them do well as they're a local side. They're in a good position to um, get promoted. 
so it'll be interesting to see how that that sort of pans out as well. Um, but yeah, there's so much now that you're starting to see come into sport that some would say has nothing to do with sport, but actually starting to see it. It does. It has a huge um, impact. Yeah, and it, it's funny because I always use sporting analogies just because it's something I'm comfortable with. Um, but I think generally speaking, traits that make people or systems successful are the same regardless of whether it's sport, business or otherwise. Um, I haven't written this question down. Um, so feel free to take some time or pass up on the question. But besides having a really detailed understanding of, for example, the sport you're looking at, um, you mentioned about the Brazil side and the common misconception being that they were an attacking side when actually they weren't. Do you think, apart from knowing the sport really, really well, do you think there's any other traits that are useful in terms of, um, how can I phrase this, in terms of not necessarily taking something at face value, if that makes any sort of sense? Uh, I guess I'd need you to maybe elaborate a little bit so more. If give, yeah, if I give you a little bit, if I give you a little bit of context, so I was speaking to uh, ironically one of my Patreon subscribers last night, and we just happened to get on the subject of uh, Mayweather, and saying that a lot of people who watch him now think he's an unbelievable defensive boxer, which granted he is, but a lot of fans who are new to the sport don't realise that in his younger days he was probably one of the most exciting attacking fighters that I've ever seen but yeah that gets forgotten about and when people watch the modern day Mayweather who they say is uh, quite defensive I'm like well he's also landed something crazy like however I think I saw some stats that he's the most economical boxer in terms of punches thrown versus punches landed which obviously would insinuate that actually his ability as an attacking fighter is very, very good. Um, yeah. But it goes beyond that surface level of, oh, he doesn't throw very, very punches, therefore he's a defensive fighter, which for me is overly simplistic. So the... Yeah, uh, no, right, yeah. So I, th I think I've um, got it. I guess, again, similarly, you could look at it in football. Um, you know, City are very good at... Well, let's let's go more to Liverpool because I think they're a better example. Liverpool are very good defensively. I think that's been clear over the last year and couple of seasons, maybe. Um, some of that down to signings, but also because of how good they are attacking-wise and how good they are at keeping the ball. And they have a way of playing, playing style that's been really drilled in. You can tell it's been drilled in. And I think this is the advantage Liverpool and City have had over the whole league this year is they've been with a manager now for a few years who's embedded this playing style. And it just, it makes such a difference. People underestimate how much of a difference this has made to what we're seeing in the league, how successful they are in games. If you know what you're doing and why you're doing it and how to do it, then you have no concerns, no anxiety when you're performing. Um, and so you see it, from Liverpool in a defensive way as much as you do in an attacking way. And I guess similar to Mayweather, he knew how good he was attacking-wise um, when he was on the front foot. And so when he uh, started to show off his defensive side and he became money, money Mayweather, it, it sort of works hand-in-hand. Hand. You know, if you're able to avoid punches, 
it makes it much easier to land punches because the opponent has opened themselves up to shots. So there's counter punches now, counter shot types that you can land. And it's the same in football. You know, if you're able to defend really well, you know, you see Leicester are very good at it. They, they defend, defend, and then they hit you on the counter and they've got attributes within the team, players like Vardy with pace, to hit teams on the counter-attack and be successful. And it's the same with Mayweather. He had speed, very good speed, arguably the best in that division at that time. And through, throughout his career, you could argue, um, maybe not towards his later career, but he always had very good speed. So he was always in a position that if you miss, I can land on you because I'm quick enough um, and bright enough to see the openings. And it's the same with a lot of uh, sports. You'll see it. You know, are you bright enough to see the openings and are you quick enough to act on it and then be successful acting on it? Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think after sort of hearing your example, I think that makes sense. And I think you do see those examples in many sports. And just to go back to the Mayweather example and also the Liverpool to a certain extent, uh, for me, in terms of, as I said, a lot of people would look at Brazil and be like attacking team. They look at Mayweather and be like defensive fighter. But actually, like for example, an interview I watched with uh, Mayweather's last win, and I'm going to call that the last win was Berto, not McGregor. Yeah, but that's a whole different, <laughs> whole different story. But Berto said that it was like fighting seven people because every time he threw something, he got hit, and he said he didn't yeah. know where the shot came from, and it was because. And I would argue it's because Mayweather is such a good attacking fighter in terms of his punch output to punches landed ratio. Because he's so good attacking, Berto said, I, I just stopped throwing punches because I didn't, I, I was just getting hit every time and counted every time. So I stopped yeah. throwing punches because I couldn't get him. And therefore, it gives the illusion that Mayweather is an unbelievable defensive fighter, which again, he is. But yeah. it's, it's almost like a chicken and egg scenario. Like, Yes, Liverpool have some unbelievable attacking talents. But like I even remember earlier in the year speaking to you about um, Gagan pressing and the style that Klopp employs or looks to employ. Yeah. And you said, look, it's nothing new. Like Teams have been doing this for years. Like Klopp isn't revolutionary per se. He's just been with the team yeah. enough, drilled the system, and it's now working yeah. for him. And he's done it on the, the biggest scale. So he's done it at Champions, Champions League final. They've been to twice now and they've won one of them. Um, and he's also won the Premier League now. So he's going to get all of the praise and he deserves it in a way because he's, you know, he has drilled this system, but this system obviously existed. It's just he's done it on a larger scale where it's more, it's in the papers more, essentially. Um, and I guess the same with Mayweather. He's at a level where he he's going to get more of the praise because again, he, he, he created that for himself in a sense. Um, and I thought Boto did talk really well on it because I've seen the clip as well. And I think what he was getting at is he felt mentally overwhelmed in the situation and wasn't able to respond anymore because every time he responded, like you said, he was getting countered. Um, and I've heard the argument, maybe was the best defensive boxer of all time. And I think defensive is too broad of a term. I think it's more specific than that. I think he's probably the best um, defensive guard boxer of all time. I think he's got the best defensive guard and I think he's nailed it because I can't tell you how many times I've seen 
people throwing combinations on him when he's got his guard and he's got that guard where his shoulder, lead shoulders really high, his right arms protecting the side of his face, using his forehead to take shots as well and slip shots. I can't tell you how many times I've seen boxers throw combinations on him and land virtually nothing. And I think that's where his strength lies. He has got a very good pull counter. So I think he has got, again, some, some of the best defensive um, counters. But I would argue that people like Pernell Whitaker, who ha and maybe you could argue Roy Jones Jr., Woody Pep, people like that, their reflexes and their defensive evasion um, techniques were maybe superior um, because that was their style. I mean, people like Pernell Whitaker were going out there just moving their head constantly, rarely having their hands up. They were just moving their head, trying to land shots. And so, of course, if you drill that every day for all your life and you're an Olympian like him and Roy Jones Jr., you probably are going to have some of the best. But where they lacked was where Mayweather didn't miss the boat as much as he could do the reflexes, maybe not to the same extent, but he still had it to a high enough level where he could use that and it worked. He also worked on his guard and he perfected a guard that's hard to emulate. And when you see boxers try and emulate it now, they don't emulate it correctly at all. I'm yet to see a boxer use his technique effectively in the fights consistently. Um, and so again, it's not he never missed the boat anywhere he filled his arsenal in his attack in his defense and in every version of those you know you can make it so simple and say oh he's really good at attacking he's really good at defending but be more specific what he was really good at is actually he had a very good defensive guard and then he was also very good at um being evasive uh and that works hand in hand just like it does in most sports if you're able to be evasive and strong defensively, you can then start to pick your moments to attack as long as you're bright enough and aware enough to see where the openings are. And that happens in all sport. Can you see the openings? And I think going back to the Mayweather thing again, I've, I'll be honest, I've loved this uh, tangent it's gone on. But to say Mayweather is a great defensive fighter, which, you know, I agree he is is almost overly simplistic. It's like saying, oh, Liverpool are just better at scoring more goals than the opponent. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Um, and yeah, that is, unfortunately, the worst thing about it is you hear the pundits saying it. And if they're meant to be the, the best spokesmen and women for the sport in that situation, and they're saying it and they're giving you simple answers like that, unfortunately, the public, the audience listening, suffer because they don't get more detailed explanations they don't get a better understanding of what you really mean it's all well and good you think in your head you know what you're saying but you've got to be able to articulate it and break it down for people listening too um and unfortunately if that's not done well it doesn't matter as far as i'm aware you don't know yourself um but yeah uh, i i find it interesting in sport just to see how how people are quick to tie a team, oh, the best defensive team in the league, best attacking team in the league, or he's the best defensive boxer, he's the best attacking boxer. When really, looking at it more specifically, there's certain things they're very good at within their defence. And then there's other bits that maybe they're not as good at, but that's what, you know, that's where it comes down to trying to exploit things. Um, and it was very hard to exploit someone like Mayweather. 
I do think as well, and people won't like hearing it, I think he picked fights at the right times in his career. I think he's, I mean, his resume is incredible. You'll, it'll be hard to find better ones. It's for everyone. But there were points where he could have fought Mosley sooner. And we saw what problems Mosley caused him. There was many points he could have fought Pacquiao sooner. And of course, people, you can make the argument Pacquiao could have fought Mayweather sooner. Um, but, you know, that, that you can do this with every boxer. I, I am probably bad for it, where I go, oh, he could have fought him then and he just chose not to. Um, but yeah, so there's a lot that goes into it. You know, I, I always find it hard to say, oh, he's the best boxer of all time because, you know, you can't compare times. Times are different. I mean, boxers were fighting something ridiculous amount in a year. I think maybe Jack Johnson fought something. I mean, he was in double figures in one year and this is at his peak, like when he's at the top, top level. And then you've got people like Mayweather towards the end of his career and boxers of today now champions who fight maybe once, twice a year. Um, and so you just can't compare it now. Uh, sports have moved on so much and you just don't know. You can't say this person's the best. What you can do is say maybe they were the best of that era in that period of time. But I just don't think you can say they're the best ever because mm. it's just too much of a complex argument to make. Yeah. And even on that subject, I think, um, again, just from my personal experience, so I had a year with... Uh, year with GB Boxing and uh, obviously Elite Amateurs going to Rio 2016 and they would have pros down to spar all the time and I, again this is going off topic but I'm just enjoying where this is going so I've seen a lot in the press uh, I just think it's lazy journalism about saying about professional boxers potentially being allowed, allowed to go to Tokyo um, 20, well, 2021 now and people saying stuff like they can't go, it's dangerous, um, it's unfair. And again, I just think it's lazy journalism because like there was an example about Ruiz potentially going to uh, Tokyo and yeah, the governing that. bodies of, um, of boxing saying he'll be banned from professional boxing for two years if he goes. And they said it's not fair because he could do some serious damage. And the professional boxers who would come to GB Boxing, and we're not talking about guys who are like 10 and 0 upstarts. These these are professionals who were like former world champions, you know, world champions. They come in and get their asses handed to them, and they join in on the track sessions, and they would get their asses handed to them. And yeah. the reason for that is these amateurs at GB Boxing, they have a strength and conditioning team, psychologists, nutritionists, performance analysis, you name it, they've got it. And they are ready to go at any drop of a hat's notice because they fight so often. And these yeah. pros would come in and think that sometimes I think they'd just come in at the start of camp and they'd almost use it as a bit of a motivational tool. And a couple of the boxers left because basically they were, they were getting beaten up by the yeah. amateurs because the amateurs are in far better shape because three three-minute rounds is, I mean, again, unpopular opinion. Three three-minute rounds at the highest level when it's just three three minute rounds is more intense than 12 threes and like i saw something off gb boxing the other day and one of the female boxers was saying that with covid she's obviously took taken a couple of weeks off she's not as fit she can only do eight rounds and i was thinking that's you not fit like yeah. ridiculous but again going back to your argument of lazy journalism perpetuating uh stuff that is 
not necessarily not true, but doesn't give the whole picture. And saying that professionals shouldn't be allowed in the Olympics because it's unsafe. Again, I, I don't think that's the full picture. And it and it's just stupid anyway, because they're taking part in a sport that is unsafe. I mean, you're taking part in a sport where you're punching someone's head, where their brain is going to smash against their skull continuously. What is safe about that? And <laughs> I, I, so I, I think it's funny that they would say that. But I mean, a, potentially a similar argument could be made. Well, then, so these up and coming sprinters, should Usain Bolt race against them? Should he have raced against some of these upcoming sprinters? Because, you know, he's the equivalent of a Ruiz. He was a veteran. He's someone who's done the sport at the highest level. Should he be allowed to go enter into the Olympics and take away from these young sprinters? And it's like, well, of course he should. Um, and it's, this, it's always, I, I don't see a problem with it, but I think like you say, I think it's lazy journalism. And that might not be the best example there within sprinting, but I think it's a similar situation. And I think you can make these sort of examples within sport and within the Olympics quite often. Um, and I mean, how often do you see in the amateurs, high level boxers, um, boxing upcoming contenders? I mean, Lomachenko didn't turn pro until, I don't know, what was he, maybe 30, late mm -hmm. 20s? The same Golovkin turned pro very late. So why were they allowed to fight all these young up-and-coming contenders, contenders for so long in the amateurs, but now you don't want them to go into uh, the Olympics, you don't want them to enter into that, even though technically they're fighting amateurs. Um, so there's a lot of uh, hypocrisy as well within the argument. Um, I saw something funny, Sean Porter fought, uh, who did he, I think he fought, so he fought Lucien Boutte, I think he fought Usyk in the amateurs, Sean Porter. Imagine that. Look at the size difference now. But, I mean, he was clearly someone who was massive. He must have been massive when he was younger. Um, but, yeah, so there's some crazy stories. And what's – so, I mean, you know, you could get very silly about it and go, well, how was that safe? Yeah. But I'm sure at the time it was, and I'm sure they were the same way. Yeah, so for, for non-boxing fans who have – somehow listen to us uh, chat shop about boxing for the last half an hour just for a bit of context uh sean porter is what 140 147 pounds yeah 147 yeah and uh usik is a light light heavyweight i believe and what's that well yeah and he's just gone up to heavyweight so yeah so heavy heavyweight unlimited weigh what you want versus somebody who weighs 10 and a half stone um, <laughs> i also think as well if you're saying that it's dangerous for someone like ruiz to fight these amateurs then surely you look at someone like Deontay Wilder and say, look, it's unsafe for you to box, period, because you hit too hard. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could make the argument. I mean, it's a silly argument because you're arguing about something that's already unsafe. Mm -hmm. So you're not, and let's be honest, Ruiz entering is not making it any more unsafe. Um, <laughs> it's already unsafe. And he, it's not like he hits ridiculously hard or... You know, mm. he's going to fight boxers that are hitting harder than him. And he'll mm. know that when he's boxing them. So, it's yeah, it's just stupid. And I think you put it right when you said it at the start. It's just lazy journalism. And, and also, going back to the whole futsal versus football, like, I mean, I mean, you'll correct me if I'm wrong. Obviously, my knowledge of futsal isn't, well, it's non-existent compared to yours. But if you were to take, this would actually be an interesting question. If you were to, so how many fo futsal, five aside? Yeah. 
Right, so if you were to take an elite futsal team, I assume there's some kind of futsal league somewhere in the world, I assume. Or, yeah. Yeah, so if you were to take an elite futsal team and then you were to bring together, say, I don't know, Messi, Ronaldo and three other players, if you want to chuck them in there as well, I'm guessing that you would be of the opinion that futsal, even though similar to football, is so different that having hours and hours and hours of deliberate practice would outweigh the fact that you've just handpicked five best footballers. Surely the futsal, the elite futsal team would be five handpicked football players. Or not. Yeah, without a doubt. Um, and so like if you took it, let's just go World Cup, biggest stage of both sports. The futsal World Cup just took place. If you took the best five futsal players from that World Cup and the best five uh, football players from the last World Cup and put them against each other, it, would be, it, it wouldn't even be close. Um, and that's not because Messi hasn't got a better touch than uh, Falcao, say, from futsal. It's nothing to do with that. It's just, like you say, different sport in a different play with different rules um, under different restrictions. And so they've been drilled better. So they just be able to knock it about. It's like the boxing MMA argument. It's just completely different. doesn't matter what... Um, like it doesn't matter how good someone is at something when you put them in a different sport with different rules that changes everything um and there's been examples of boxers going over to mma and there's some that's been successful ray mercer who knocked out tim sylvia um and that fight didn't really get started and then there's some that's been unsuccessful james tony who a better boxer than ray mercer fought Randy Couture and just bang straight away taken down and that's the end of the fight and realistically it's the same that could happen if Mayweather fought McGregor you know McGregor just grab hold of him he's bigger he's stronger better technique when it comes to I say stronger in a very loose term because there's different types of strength but ultimately he's just a bigger frame he'll be able to grab hold of him get him down and then it's game over unfortunately if he wanted to um and it's just like Mayweather, I'm sure, at any point in that fight could have turned it on and just ended it when he wanted to. But he didn't. And people say, oh, no, that was just McGregor was doing so well. Not a chance. Not a chance. <laughs> we, we saw the difference between the two of them on the night. It wasn't even close. And Mayweather looked horrendous. If I'm being honest, he looked horrendous. Yeah, he did. If he fought any other welterweight at that time, a top five welterweight, he'd have really struggled and mm. he might have even lost to be honest. Like you had people like Spence at the time, Furman, even Porter, Porter would be a nightmare for him at that point in his career. Um, Brooke would have been a tough matchup at the time. Like, all of these would have been horrendous nights it's, for him. It's funny because uh, a couple of things spring to mind. So there's a post that always pops up on my Instagram feed and I always like it because I just think it's funny. Um, in one of the rounds of Mayweather McGregor where McGregor basically steps to Mayweather's right hand, which as a bog standard Southpaw versus Orthodox, left-handed versus right-handed. As an amateur boxer, the first thing you're taught when you're fighting someone of the opposite stance is don't do that. And he does it, yeah. and Mayweather absolutely plants one on him. And he doesn't just step to his right, but he steps to his he, McGregor steps to Mayweather's right hand, and then he literally steps into the punch. So he steps right and forward. And just stuff that you, as an amateur boxer, you would just never, ever, ever do. Yeah. And there's yeah. another clip that makes me laugh where it's something like taking the mick out of McGregor's power. And it's like, 
uh, insane shot landed by McGregor and it literally kisses Mayweather's nose because he's just he just doesn't have the understanding of the distance um but I think a status from somebody on Facebook that I follow that summed it up for me and it was like Mayweather beats McGregor in a ring McGregor beats Mayweather in an octagon and Ronnie O'Sullivan beats them both at snooker <laughs> and that's spot on um and what I will say is from that takeaway, and I don't know how we've got on to Mayweather McGregor, but from that <laughs> takeaway of that fight, what I will say is I was the, there was one point that really impressed me, and it was from McGregor, is when he was able to, I think he slipped a shot and landed an uppercut. Now, it was the worst uppercut I've seen thrown. <laughs> and if a boxer threw that uppercut, you go, he's useless. But... <laughs> What he did show is he showed he's able to, he's got very good reflexes and he sees openings. So even though he's not able to counter on those openings to the best ability, mainly down to technique and experience in that sport, but he was able to land it and it wasn't flush and it was annoying it wasn't flush because I would have loved to have seen that just to see what would have happened. You know, would it have been had no effect or would it have had a little bit of effect and would the crowd have got involved and you know, it would have been interesting to see, but it was a moment. That was his biggest moment. And if he was a trained boxer, I mean, that could be devastating. You know, what a, a solid uppercut like that thrown by a boxer who knows how to lean their weight into the shot and really turn their hips up through the shot, drive the leg up through the shot. But yeah, it was a very poor um, uppercut. But it was it was a moment for me that I thought, well, actually, he's showing that, you know, He's not Mayweather isn't the best at this point, but people were still classing him mm. as the best. He's able to land a shot like that on the best, and an uppercut is a you know it's not a punch used often in boxing, so it's a it's a it's a good idea. It's a, one of those where he slipped, he's seen the opening, and he's not just thrown a straight at it because that that's not the opening shot. The opening shot on that one was the uppercut, and he landed it. So I, I came away going actually putting McGregor back in the UFC and MMA, he might have some of the better boxing in that, in his weight division. And he didn't get the credit before um, from the pundits. I don't know why. I mean, I thought he was, for MMA standard, he was a better boxer than most. Um, mm. But I knew, because I'm, I've been a boxing fan before I was an MMA fan all my life, I knew as soon as you chuck someone in against, if he had been fighting a British amateur or you know, a Southern regional champion, he would have got beat. Uh, he would have got beat. And it would have been more embarrassing because, not just because they they haven't got as much notoriety as Mayweather, but they would have stepped on him. They wouldn't have done what Mayweather done and messed about because it's a big occasion and trying to sell it to the fans and enjoy the moment. They would have just got in there and wanted to, because he's a name, put a beating on him so that they can get all the, like, all the praise. So... Um, there's a lot of delusional people out there, unfortunately, and uh, you still see it in boxing all the time. It's tough to have conversations with people because you think, how can you make an argument for some of these cases? Like people, I see it more in UFC. Like people were making an argument, Masvidal was going to be Usman at the weekend, and I was thinking, you're so either you're just really uneducated or you're just delusional. He's coming off, he's fighting him on six days' notice. The guy he's fighting is a wrestler. He's been training for weeks. He's un an unbelievable athlete. 
what do you think is going to happen? As soon as they get in there, he's going to grab him and put him on the floor. And you're not going to be able to stop him. And to be fair to Masvidal, he's got very good takedown offence. If he wasn't fighting him on six days' notice, maybe he'd done better. But I, I can't. People are putting bets, huge money. There's a guy who put $500,000 on Masvidal to win. And I was sitting there thinking, you're an idiot. What have you done? You've just thrown money away. Like, it was never going to be close, that fight. I mean, in these, yeah. in these people's defence, I remember, and this is the one and only time I've ever put down any remote decent money on any sporting event, and we've never done it since, but I remember putting down, uh, I mean, it was only 100 quid at the time, but I think I might have been like 16, 17. So, like, you know, you're talking two days' work, big money for me. And I was like, Mayweather yeah. tees, Mayweather wins. And I was like, Mayweather doesn't just win, he obviously wins by unanimous decision because that's what he does. And then, obviously, uh, for those who didn't watch the fight, Ortiz headbutts Mayweather, and Mayweather yeah. takes umbrage to him and hits him with a left cook when they're uh, trying to apologise. So, uh, yeah, yeah, anything can happen. That's the beauty of sport. I mean, I don't mind when people are able to make rational arguments, but there was no rational argument for this. And you see it a lot in sport. People who, they're not hardcore fans, and they're just casual. They are casual. As much as they like to think they're hardcore, they're not because they don't know all the smaller details and all of the history and the build-up, etc. And that's that's where you can get frustrated as a sports fan. And I'm sure you get that in your um, sports science world and uh, strength and conditioning world. I'm sure you get it as well, where you're talking to people who just they don't have the same amount of knowledge and they think they're hardcore. They think they're at that level, but they're not. They're not at that level, and I think it's important. And I'm this might be the wrong way to handle it. I always stop talking, I stop having the conversation because I know, and it might sound a little bit arrogant, but I know there's no point in me having this conversation because we're on two different wavelengths. I think, I think boxing is a prime example because, as a boxer, when you and going back to the transferable skills, I actually think that as much as it frustrated me at the time. The KSI Logan Paul fight. I think you'll start to see a lot. And I think if I was a, um, if I was a professional boxer now, I would be going to these people and saying that how are you marketing yourself? Because as much as I think it was a joke that they managed to get so many people to watch them, people aren't tuning in because they like them as a boxer. They're tuning in because they've built a brand. And like up and coming professional boxers or even amateurs looking to turn professional, do yourself a favour and like learn from these people who have gone viral learn from these people who have amassed a massive following find out yeah. what they're doing that's getting them so popular because ultimately you need to learn how to get people to put money in your pocket um i'm trying to think where yeah. i was going with that uh with that no, <laughs> yeah. I, get, I get what you're saying and that's something that boxers aren't good at like most of the time they're just not and i think that's because they've got a promoter so they don't need to necessarily be good at it mm. um and maybe they, I mean, they do, they do have to be good at it, but they probably leave it to the promoter and focus on training because their full-time commitment is training. Mm. Whereas people like KSI and Logan Paul, let's be honest, their full-time commitment isn't boxing training. But, you know, well done to them for obviously going, giving it a go. I mean, it's still a difficult sport and going in there, having a fight with another person in front of lots of people. Um but realistically, they had the platforms built. So, again, what was hard work for them was getting to that point. 
once they were at that point, they could have had a basketball game, a 1v1, and people would have been sitting in there and they wouldn't have had to have done anything. You know, they could have sat down and had a drink in front of an audience and a chat, and I bet they would have filled it out. So it's, it's also having the platform. If you've got the platform, it's not hard. I mean, I saw, I, I saw a tweet the other day. I can't remember which boxer it was moaning about, I'm not going to brown nose to get to where I want to get to. And, you know, I'm sick of this boxing and, you know, my time's being wasted. I, it was along those lines. So he was very bitter and upset that he wasn't getting opportunities. And he felt like he had to brown those people. He had to suck up to people to get the opportunities. Um, but that's, again, like uh, the negative side of looking at it. Of course, you can look at it like that. But you can also look at it the other side and be positive and think, well, I want to create opportunities for myself. So how do I do that? And if you can create opportunities by networking or, as he put it, brown nosing, but, you know, that's just two different outlooks on it. Some people would look at it as, no, I'm just networking. I'm not doing anything ridiculous. I'm not degrading myself. Others would just look at it in a pessimistic way and say, oh, you're, you're degrading yourself. You know, you're um, beneath that person. But that's just not the case. So, um, you know, it's being able to create those opportunities. That's difficult. That's the hard bit. But when you've got a platform already, you, it's not very hard to, I mean, I can't say from experience, but I can't imagine it is as hard to create those opportunities as it would be without the platform. Yeah. And it's funny because uh, as I'm listening to you say those sort of things, I, I mean, I feel conflicted on it all the time. I've had people say to me, you know, uh, for example, I bemoan the fact that I see some drivel on social media as far as fitness is concerned. And it's sort of, well, if you can't beat them, join them sort of thing. It's all like, you know, I've had friends say to me, oh, well, why don't you put out stuff that is very generic you know, I don't know. Build sell muscle. out. Yeah, well, effectively, yeah. Uh, build muscle, lose fat. Or even if we go down the uh, Joe Wicks example, like, like you said, some people say, oh, I'm not going to stoop to that level of, you know. But, I mean, I've read up a bit about him. And um, in terms of building his brand, bloody hell. Like, oh, I, he, what he's He's 20 million, 20 million or something like that. And he's reproducing stuff, which is easy to reproduce. People are paying for it. He's scaled a business. He's been on every national TV newspaper I can think of. If you just presented his sort of, um, how can you say, I suppose his sort of what he's achieved. And if you said to somebody, going back to your boxer example, if you said to him, if you presented him the statistics for KSI Logan Paul and said, for example, I don't, I'm making these figures up, by the way. I didn't, obviously didn't watch the fight. But <laughs> if you said to this person who's like, I'm not going to brown those, that, uh, I don't know, 5 million people in the US will watch you. You'll make this much money from pay-per-view. 50% um, of the UK population will have heard of you. 99% of 16 to 24-year-olds will know your name and your brand. If you flip it the other way, like you said, as long as you stay true to your values and your principles, um, then I'm sure this boxer would be like, yeah, that sounds good to me. And to me, uh, I just think, right, what is my sort of platform to perform brand? What does that look like? Am I staying true to it? And as long as I'm staying true to it, then, you know, however the, ironically, however the platform grows, pardon the pun, um, <laughs> I'm happy with that. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And... Again, 
it's difficult because you don't want to be that person that is seen as maybe a sellout or whatever it may be. But it's just a little anecdote on Joe Wick. So I, I was, when I was at uni, there was a, a speaker who came in and he was in the business world of sport. And he uh, said he went to this um, business seminar probably, I don't know, 10 years prior to when I was at uni. So however long that was. And he said, um, he was sitting down and there's this guy, this really young guy, probably uh, early 20s, maybe late teens at the time, sat next to him and he was just constantly talking, telling him, oh, I'm going to be a success. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to, um, I've got a really good idea. It's um, niche, it's unique. Um, I'm going to make a lot of money out of this. And I'm, I've got the passion and drive. And they were just having a chat. But he said he'd come away thinking, oh, he was annoying and he's got no chance. He's way too naive. And that person was Joe Wicks. And so he's gone on to, like, you know, crack it, if we're honest. And uh, it just goes to show, you know, even if you haven't maybe got the best idea. I mean, I think personally, when he first started, he had quite a good idea. I mean, the idea to get him started of the making the meals I think it was like five minute meals or something ridiculous like that and it was a niche market I suppose at the time an emerging market and he he sort of did that got him going and then no matter because he's built a platform then that's sort of going back to the KSI Logan Paul thing because he's now got a platform to just create opportunities out of thin air for himself he's able to do it and that's why he's able to go into the fitness world without the same accreditation as some of you know other people and still sell still be successful um partly personality comes into it but mainly he's got um he's got uh what's the word i'm looking for you know he's re he's got recognition already you know mm -hmm. people will say well actually he's already done something so i know he must be good even though he ha might not have the same knowledge you know the same expertise um the best practices he's got something he's been successful with it so therefore i'm probably if you're the average person who knows nothing about the world i'm going to side with him there's a um oh god i wish i could remember the name for the psychological principle um i was watching a ted talk the other day actually no it wasn't a ted talk um it's by an author called james clear whose book atomic habits would highly recommend um but anyway he talks about the principle of something being well known so for example even if i don't know let's say you look at joe wicks's products or because i know loads of nutritionists have slammed it or loads of strength and conditioning professionals have said oh it's not good for this 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 and this or loads of for example pe teachers have said what he's doing is not pe and yeah. loads and loads of criticisms but the principle basically says that people going and i suppose it applies most commonly to brands but people going with brands simply because they've heard of them and they're well known. And mm. the principle follows such that even if you were to say, um, criticize it, you're actually building that brand because people are starting to hear of it more. Of so course, yeah. I suppose it follows the whole, you know, all good, all publicity is good oh, publicity. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and ironically, if you want something to disappear, the worst thing you can do is keep talking about it, which just I suppose, you know, makes sense. Yeah. And again, the thing that he will say is, you know, you're not my target market. So the people that are the sports science world, and he has got a lot of criticism and I've been one of those people criticizing him as well at times. 
we're not the target market. So he doesn't, he shouldn't care. He shouldn't waste any energy on us. And realistically, he's not us. So we shouldn't waste any energy on him either. So I guess it falls into what you're saying as well there. Um, we're not his competition as much as we, some, because it's closely related and it looks similar. And because of the way maybe it's been reported in the media and people are saying, oh, he's doing PE we get defensive and we want to defend what our subject is and actually no he's not doing PE and but then you get some people who say well he is and that doesn't help our argument that makes us even more defensive and you know if you've got your own community of PE teachers saying no yeah it is PE and he's doing a good job then that can make you more defensive and more agitated to want to respond um, but like you say the worst thing you can do is keep talking about it because all that will do is just promote that brand unless that's what you want to do i mean and you know good on you if that is what you want to do you want to try and support him and push him forward fair enough yeah and it, it's funny because um another book recommendation simon sinek start with why for me clarify because if you think right well why is he doing it like it, it's not to physically educate children it's not to, you know and that's not me having to go at him that's just me saying that it isn't he, he's done a fantastic job of keeping kids physically active and yeah like if that's your goal then let's be honest i he smashed it because yeah. if you look at the numbers of kids that have done it like fair play and then i also think from a semantic perspective for me to criticize somebody who's got kids physically active, I can't do that because nah. regardless of whether you think, if you were going to go to the extent where you're criticising, I don't know, exercise selection, uh, should it be high intensity interval training? Is it, for example, are there appropriate progressions and regressions applied? Then I think you could criticise pretty much any sport coach ever. Like, yeah. you know, if we just take sport coach, like I'll give an example. So, um, a pet peeve of mine is, I don't know, let's say, right, somebody's done something in your session, right, everybody drop down, give me 10 press-ups. You've got one kid who's a superstar who can do 20 press-ups, another kid who can't even hold his own body weight. And, you know, you could criticise that. But if, for example, said coach isn't from the world of strength conditioning or they've not had training in exercise progression, regression, what's appropriate, or maybe they're not even doing it for those purposes, if you're going to criticise Joe Wicks, then you're going to criticise a hell of a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. Um, but yeah, it's funny, isn't it? It's funny, the sports science community and the sports science world, how often we uh, we get like this and you hear these sort of conversations because there are a lot of experts in our field. And so when you see cowboys potentially coming into the frame and making money off it, you can get agitated. Yeah, and I think you've just got to separate it in terms of one, which field is it? Because I think, as you said, when it looks closely to what you do, if you just take it on face value, then it's easy to get defensive. But actually, if you strip it all back and like, for example, if you just branded it physical activity, I reckon most PE teachers and s and coaches, I, I don't know what they would say. Um, yeah. But, because they viewed it as he's selling what we're trying to sell and yeah. my product is better. That's when people get it. I suppose the, another analogy would be like, um, 
I'm trying to think of a elite burger chain now. Um, but it'd be like an elite burger chain or like it'd be like a Michelin starred chef being like getting annoyed at McDonald's as an example for being hugely yeah. successful for selling burgers. And it's like, yeah, they're selling, they're selling meat. I'm selling meat, but their meat's rubbish. And you're like, yeah, but yeah. they're not selling it for the same purposes that you're selling. No. Yeah, exactly. No, I think that's a great way to sum it up, to be honest. And uh, I'll finally go back into my question, which I asked you about uh, three years ago. Um, but if you could spend time with any other coach, which coach would it be and why? Uh, I mean, that is a tough question to answer. Um, oh, I think I would like, coaching-wise, there would have been, I mean, from football, it would be, the likes of, I would like to hear what someone like Mourinho has to say about philosophy. Um, but I would like to have that conversation amongst someone who's smashing it right now, like a Klopp and a, a Guardiola. I, I, th I think it would be nice to get a balance of conversation of people who've been successful. And that might sound harsh to say about Mourinho because he's still, you know, he's at Tottenham, a good side. Not so much this year, but um, not so much ever, to be honest, but, um, <laughs> you know, he, he's still, uh, he's still, you know, in the top, top league in the world. Um, and he's been successful not too long ago. So it'd be interesting to hear like what a conversation would sound like amongst like a Guardiola and a Mourinho, maybe a Klopp as well. I'm not a massive fan of Klopp, if I'm honest. So maybe we'll kick him out of the, the conversation, but it'd be interesting to see what they say to each other and how they talk about philosophy and football and sport um, and what they feel is most important uh, because, you know, I think they're quite similar in a sense. They both are willing to make unpopular decisions rightly or wrongly for the success of a team. And I think you've seen it with uh, Guardiola, with Aguero where he he stopped playing him and City fans weren't happy and to be honest he probably got it wrong he was playing Jesus in the end he switched it back Aguero came back in Jesus was dropped but he was willing to take that risk he was willing to make an unpopular decision that he thought might work towards his playing style and I I think top managers are able to do that what he was able to do though was to go back on it and I think that's where Mourinho sometimes is his ego interferes and he doesn't always let that happen. And so he'll drop players that maybe aren't beneficial for the team. And he, he's not willing to accept it. Maybe he was wrong. Um, and so I'd like to, it'd be nice to be able to have conversations with people like that. If any opportunity sort of arose, that would be amazing. But, um, you know, the likeliness of it is obviously slim, but it'd be interesting to sort of get their thoughts. And it would also be interesting from an outside, like, you know, you can listen to pundits talk about ma other managers all day long, but it'd be, it'd be fascinating to see what these other managers' perceptions of the other managers are just from the outside looking in, because I think yeah. a skill I want to work on certainly for the next uh, couple of years is that ability to make those unpopular decisions. But as you said, to, culminate a relationship in such a way that you can make a decision that somebody's not happy with but you've built a strong enough culture where 
it's not personal. It's not the manager doesn't like me, the teacher doesn't like me. So mm. that you can bring that player back into the fold or that athlete back into the fold or that pupil back into the fold when the time's appropriate. Yeah, agreed. I mean, I, I like listening to people who spark curiosity and make me think about things. And like in boxing, I think there's a lot of bad, or maybe not a lot of bad coaches, but a lot of coaches, and um, for obvious reasons, who can't articulate themselves very well. And that's usually because they were boxers before they were coaches, and obviously they've taken a lot of punishment. So the ability to articulate themselves sometimes is difficult. And you know, some you can make the argument as well. Maybe if you was go more detailed, a lot of people who get into boxing get into it because it's an escape. And they've come from poverty lifestyles, maybe uneducated lifestyles. So they're not able to articulate themselves as well as maybe some other um, sports. But you still get really well-read coaches. And so it's nice to always hear some of them talk as well. You know, I think Emmanuel Stewart was someone I used to like listening to talk about boxing. Um, I think Andre Ward, someone I know he's not a coach yet, but he talks really well. Yeah. Uh, I think Carl Frosch talks quite well on it. Um, but a couple of coaches that spring to mind, Adam Booth would be one, yeah. I think would be interesting to hear talk about, uh, as long as he's willing to take it serious. <laughs> um, and then I quite like, um, what's his name? Davidson. Oh, I was going to say Ben Davidson. Ben Davidson. I think he talks very well, but I think you need to get a balance because he's so he likes to be analytical about every little thing when sometimes I think there's not anything there and he's just analyzing it because he thinks there's something there and there's not. I think it'd be nice to get a balance to that. And I think someone like Booth would balance that quite nicely. Um, Funny enough on, on that subject, I, uh, I tagged a friend in um, a post on my Instagram feed and I thought it was fascinating because it was Amir Khan's last round against uh i forget his first name but katelnik for his first world title um or mm. what would be his first world title and he was and i i'm very very hot on what coaches say to their boxers in those split seconds because one you've got so much adrenaline pumping through you two you probably heavily concussed at this point so and three the fact yeah. that you've got seconds once you've taken the gum shield out applied some compression maybe stitched a cut whatever like once all that is said and done maybe you've got 20 seconds at most um yeah and i counted the number of different things he told him in you know the 60 seconds and it was about i think it was at least four and yeah. i was like literally yeah i mean it's easy for me to sit here as an armchair fan but i was like He's miles up on points. He he literally needs to run for the round and make it boring. Um, but he told him four different things. I think that's interesting because Freddie Roach is probably one of the most decorated Hall of Fame trainers that there is. I mean, I think Manny Stewart might have had more world titles than him, but he's got to be up there. And I thought, bloody hell, for someone who's been unbelievably successful, again, easy for me to say. I've never been in. I've never been in the corner with a boxer, but I was like for his experience to be saying so many things at his boxer is just for me this, i'm like this is this is too much I have that conversation when you're in the gym and you've got the world title and brought it home yeah no i agree um 
But again, I, I mean, I'm sure you've you would have seen it firsthand better than me. But I feel like boxing is a sport where, at grassroots level, the coaching isn't great. The t- teaching of techniques might be great. The actual, you know, remediations and how you improve someone in certain areas, I feel is an area where it's not great. It's not as up to date. It's not as current. Um, you know, how much video analysis is done at grassroots level. Um, you know, at, of course, at, um, in Sheffield at the Olympic Centre, there's going to be loads. But I'm talking at grassroots level. How often and how common is this more high level practice? Now, you, people will say, well, that's because all the top coaches are at the top end of the sport. Well, maybe so. But I, I mean, I don't know that for fact. Um, but I think more can be done there as well. I mean, there's, it's, it has been a sport where I've come in and I've sort of thought, oh, like this all seems very old-fashioned and actually um, not very current and it hasn't moved with the times. I mean, the amount of notational analysis out there now on sports, and funny enough, boxing was one of the first. It was the first. In fact, Bruno versus Tyson was the first fight to have notational analysis used in sport. And... So if that was the sport they used first on it, where's it gone? Because it's definitely not used as much in uh, training and coaching, and it should be. And also, when you look at the stats on boxing boxing bouts, it's horrendous, the stats they give you. I mean, it's so basic, and they don't. there's so much they could be talking about and being more specific on, and it's just lost on them. They don't even talk about it in, in post-fight analysis. They don't talk about how many fo- how many punches they were landing in the centre of the ring compared to when they were in their corner or in their opponent's corner um, or in neutral positions uh, on the ring. So uh, there's a lot that I think uh, is missing out of boxing at the moment that I would find really refreshing and interesting and insightful to if it was introduced. I also think, in to be fair, in boxing coaches' defence, uh, a lot of them, for example, it's not full time job. It's obviously just to help the community. And like, for example, I coached a boxing gym, um, volunteered myself as a coach, um, would train, but to yeah. be honest, I just enjoyed coaching. But the chap who ran the gym, I don't know what his other job was, but he was working like fourteen hour days. Would get to the gym with five minutes to spare before the session started, and because of that it would always be the same sessions. And part of me was thinking, oh, you know, uh, like with my sports science hat on or teaching hat on or whatever you want to call it, I was thinking, right, just take 20 minutes, well, maybe not even 20 minutes, take five minutes. If you're training five times a week, as an example, then even if you go something like you have a theme of, of the day, I don't know, let's say Monday, you're going to work on the jab or Tuesday, you're going to work on blocks and parries or Thursday, whatever, you're going to work on footwork or, you know, however you want to periodize that model, just so at least you have a little bit of a guiding principle, like like we talked about earlier, even though you've got a theme, like in in an ideal world, you'd have a very, very specific aim and your athletes would know whether or not they'd hit that aim. As we said earlier, sport is just too complex to say, yeah, we've mastered the jab now. Um, yeah. But, you know, if you have those themes, then at least you're starting to get your fighters switched on as to what they're working on. Because as an example, comparing coaching and teaching with my boxing background, if I was te- to teach a lesson on boxing, I'm so passionate about it that I'm going to tell the kids about every mu- mu- minute detail. 
even yeah. if the lesson's their first lesson on boxing and all I want them to do is not cross their feet. Whereas yeah. if I'd set if I'd set the I don't know, the aim of this lesson is for you to know what that footwork looks like. And by the mm. end of the lesson, you'll be able to tell me, you'll be able to do it in a closed drill. And those of you who are really good might be able to show me that in an open drill. Um, yeah. But at least by setting that, you switch the athlete's attention on to what you'll be focusing on. And then even if, you know, if you've coached for 10 years, even if, like we said about the deliberate practice, even if you've not had much deliberate practice in that, you'll still have amassed 10 years of experience of various different drills, activities, and the general themes that they fit under. And even if you take, I don't know, five, 10 minutes to plan your week, you can still be thinking, right, well, I've got these drills for that theme. Then how can I make it easier or harder? What if somebody doesn't get it? What if they do? And then you can just start to build what that week in the boxer's life looks like. Because I think, again, not to be critical, because the voluntary work they do for little to no pay, I think is unbelievable. But then I also do think, you know, just five minutes, or even if you said, you know, with technology nowadays, you could chuck all the boxes in on a Facebook group and just put a poll. What do you want to work on? What sessions can you attend? And what yeah. do people think of this schedule? Like, you could do that in five minutes. Um, yeah. Again, not to have a pop at coaches because they do an unbelievable service and I've benefited from that unbelievable service. But I do also think that it could be as simple as that debrief you mentioned earlier in the podcast, right? last five minutes what we're going to do is we're going to have a stretch and for the next week i want you to write something on this board that you'd like to work on and i don't know will the thing that you put down that most people put down will work on for the next week or you know whatever yeah agreed and i guess that for me there's more that can be done by the governing bodies in these sports and i know from communicating with um england boxing that there's more that can be done uh, to support uh, clubs I mean I couldn't believe the fact that um, to get on a course you have to be affiliated yeah. to a club and I mean what a missed opportunity like I get the fact that you want to protect the qualification you don't want anyone just using it and getting these qualifications but at the same time you're making the pool of opportunity so much smaller by just me by just choosing people that have to be aligned or affiliated to a club and um i think there's just more that can be done because like you say what you end up with when you do that is you end up with volunteers and you end up with people who own gyms or a club being the sole person with maybe a friend or someone part a partner running the sessions continuously and it's not they don't have the passion for it they do but unfortunately, they become overwhelmed when the workload becomes too much and they don't have the support they need to run effective uh, sessions that can improve the sport and improve um, athletes' performance as well as coaches' performance. Yeah, I think that's spot on. And again, to go back to the McGregor analogy, like seeing him call out other boxers, like for example, there was um, video footage of him sparring Paulie Malinaji and dropping him but I don't ever think he beats any other boxer in a fight just because in an eight-week camp, you can't get the amount of deliberate practice that you required, even if you got the best coaches, best nutritionists, best sports scientists, whatever, whatever, whatever. You, you can't. Yes, you can um, make more efficient uses of your time, but you can't, overall, you can't cheat it. Like if you need, I don't know, whatever hypothetical number you want to pluck from your head, 
I just don't think that you can amass uh, a career's worth of boxing experience into an eight-week camp. It's just not going to happen. And similarly, if you're going to spend 10 years volunteer, voluntarily coaching, you obviously have a vested interest at some sort of level. So even if England boxing, as an example, made it mandatory that once a year they're going to visit every club or, you know, you just have like an expiry day and it's a CPD session or, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I think you're spot on about the the sort of, uh, like, like you were saying about McGregor, the analogy. I mean, I, I agree. I don't think he does beat any other elite or not even elite, but top boxer. Um, and I think there's a good percentage of low level boxers. I think majority percentage that beat him as well. Of course, you could probably find someone he beats. I mean, you're talking about a huge pool of participants here. Um, and after seeing Malin Adji do a bare knuckle bout against Artem Lobov and losing, as much as I thought he maybe won by a round, if it's that close against someone like him, I can't help but think maybe those sparring sessions against McGregor were a little bit um, uh, in McGregor's favour because, I mean, it was embarrassing to watch that yeah, uh, bare contest. But, um, yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And if you were to... So, I've mentioned a few books. We obviously chatted about various, various topics. But if you were to recommend a resource to listeners, whether it's a book, a podcast, um, even social media accounts, whatever, what would be your recommended resource of choice? Um, I guess there'd be one that would come to mind is there's a book called The Whole Brain Child, and it's sort of like a psychology book. Um, and it's about sort of uh, ch ch children development. Uh, it's by Dr. Daniel Seagal, I think it is, and uh, Tina Payne Bryson, both doctors. Um, I thought, and that was quite an interesting book, and it sort of uh, goes through child development and how the brain works and how it develops. Another good one was Matthew Said. I think you mentioned him earlier. Um, there's a book he has, The Greatest, and again, it, another very good book. Um, and then... Again, I like to read about athletes and how, like, their hacks almost in a game. How have they hacked their way to the top? What are they doing differently? There's a good one called Mind Game, and it's a golf book. And it's um, Thomas Bjorn, who's a golfer, and he, he talks about the secrets of golf winners. Um, and it's really interesting. So, I mean, they, they're just a few off the top of my head. I mean, there's some other really good books that are probably a little bit I wouldn't say outdated, they still have relevance, but like Matthew Saeed's got a few black box thinking. Yeah. Um, I think Bounce, uh, another good one. Uh, Carol Dweck's Mindset's a good one, but I think if you're going to read Mindset, um, don't take it as gospel because there's a lot of research now that's also co contrary to what Mindset says. Um, despite the fact, I think, there's still a lot of value in, in that research and that actually I think it can be implemented growth mindset and there's a lot of positives there. I think you still got to balance it out. I mean, personally, whenever I read anything, I always look for the opposite. I try and seek out the opposite opinion just so I have a balanced uh, opinion myself and I don't, because what happens is you think something and you 
sometimes can get so attached to the idea you then go and read about something that supports that idea and then that makes you right and that not that isn't always the case so um but yeah off the top of my head those books very very good reads and very educational yeah and i, I completely agree in terms of reading something that's completely different to what you said because as an example i remember um oh christ the the name alludes me the game changers netflix and yeah. I remember watching that and it flew in the face of anything I'd ever been taught from a dietary perspective to the point where I was like, oh, maybe I've, uh, maybe everything I've learned so far and have believed is wrong. Um, but then again, heard that, was intrigued. And I went to see like, a podcast I listened to yesterday, which um, for me said a lot of things I believe. I went to see what nutritionists were mentioning on the topic. So as an example, you mentioned that primary school teachers yes maybe we criticize the p lessons but they have for example i think you said four hours across an entire degree yeah. and the doctors in game changers who are medical doctors had four hours of nutrition over a seven-year medical degree um so then i went to see what actual nutritionists are saying um i suppose you could almost argue is that then confirming my bias that what was spouted in the documentary was wrong or fabricated or at least exaggerated but i've taken the time to write i've got this opinion exactly. from my university study i've seen this netflix documentary which by the way if people could stop conflating or confusing netflix documentary as research that'd be great and then went back <laughs> to see what nutritionists had said about it uh, uh yeah you're spot on and the i mean i won't get into it now maybe for another day but it's funny how much research is done by bad scientists or bad academics that just isn't true and it supports an agenda or a hypothesis they had before the research and they've literally gone out seeked that information shaped it in a way where it looks credible and then it's all been peer-reviewed and ticked off and suddenly that becomes gospel and we teach it for decades and decades and find out actually it's not true it's wrong we've been getting it wrong and there's, I mean, <clears throat> there's a really good podcast. I, I won't go, I mean, I won't go into the details of all of the stuff, but if you want to find out more about that, there's a good podcast on the Joe Rogan experience. He has a doctor on, and um, I'll try uh, and remember the name and I'll you. get it back. To you. Uh, I don't know if it's the exact podcast you're mentioning, but there's a guy called Dr. Andy Galpin, who's, he is one of only, I think, four or five researchers in the world who is looking at the changes in fiber type composition with training. And he went right. on the Joe Rogan podcast and um, he, I don't know, I can't remember whether it's said on that exact podcast or it's a tongue in cheek thing, but he said on one of his, Dr. Andy Galpin said on one of his podcasts, look, Joe Rogan, no disrespect, not a scientist. And yeah. he said, regardless of what Joe Rogan tells you, there is not less oxygen at the top of Everest. And he used the word bias to describe it, which uh, I feel like Susie Dent now. But if to describe <laughs> something as spious or species, however you pronounce it, is something that sounds plausible, but is actually not true. Um, so there isn't less oxygen at the top of Everest. That's, you know, that's not why it's harder to breathe. Um, I'm trying to remember the exact scientific, I think it's the partial pressure of oxygen, but anyway, different story. Um, but the explosion of social media and everything like that, again, going back to that principle, that name I couldn't remember, Joe Wicks is now an authority figure because so many people have heard of him. Therefore, when he speaks, people listen. And Joe yeah. Rogan, he's had, I think, hundreds of podcasts now. Like he did a, um, 
he did a video on, or sorry, a podcast on coronavirus. And I was watching the, the um, viewings of that. The day I saw it, it was 2 million. Next day, it gone to 18 million. Next day, it gone to 64 million. And you think yeah. it, it was him interviewing uh, one specific doctor, I believe. Yeah. But you think that's nearly the entire UK population who've watched him speak to a doctor. Now, depending on his knowledge and the questions he asks, you're going to hear certain responses. Um, another article, which absolutely anyone who's bothered to listen to this podcast to the very end, go and read this article. I'll put it in the show notes. It's called something like the death of PubMed. And my powerlifting coach sent it to me. And the crux of the article is if you don't have a scientific background in the sense of you know how to read a research paper, you know how to find limitations, you know how to critique study design, then basically you have no place citing research to back up your point because you yeah. don't know how to read a research paper. Therefore, when you see the research title that says, I'm going to make something up now, by the way, um, fish oil waves off dementia. I mean, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But if you're not scientifically trained in such a way that you can understand a research article, then you saying, oh, I found a research paper, or saying something like, oh, well, whatever research you come at me with, I'm going to find research to say the opposite is naive at best. Yeah, agreed. And I think that is, I think spot on that. Again, he's got such a big platform and he speaks relatively well and sounds like he knows what he's talking about that. He definitely can fall into that sort of pseudoscience category where he's saying things that not aren't always factual. Um, but yeah, the, the scientist I was talking about was Brett Weinstein. Um, he talks about how there's a lot of bad uh, science that's gone on and it's to do with um, lab-based mice uh, versus uh, wild free mice and how actually when you test on the two it's completely different and so all this medication and pharmaceutical companies that have been testing using lab mice saying uh, this is going to reduce hypertension um, etc blah -de blah heart related diseases lung related diseases some of it just isn't true and unfortunately, they're so far along now. And um, again, worth reading in and around lines and reading between the lines, but listening to a few podcasts, they're so far along now that if you, um, even if you try and talk out and say, actually, I think this is wrong. And I think we've made an error here. You'll just get battered with um, lawsuits, legal um, legal lawsuits, etc., And you'll, you basically you got no chance of winning um without support but his research and again this was towards his hypotheses he was correct he found out that actually the hair follicles in uh, lab mice are completely different to your normal rodent um outside in the in the wild and um therefore that made a difference to the effects the impacts of drugs on a lab mouse compared to just your normal mouse um and so because there was these differences, actually, they needed to do the test again. And uh, the, some of the pharmaceutical companies that are now selling these uh, medicines and tablets, etc., potentially could be doing more harm than good. Um, not something you want to hear and certainly not something you want to hear from just your average person who's talking on the topic. But definitely worth listening to Brett Weinstein on the Joe Rogan experience. But there's there's a lot of these um there's a lot of this that happens in 
science unfortunately the research can be really poor really substandard and um it can be sold as gospel another good one is the uh um i think it's tim keys who was head of the american heart um association and basically said saturated fat is bad for you and then that became uh, gospel for decades and decades generations and now we're getting research that contradicts that and is contrary to it and it talks about how his study was i think they nicknamed it the seven country study or something along those lines and it was just he picked seven countries that matched his hypotheses and again a lot of that um study fell into politics um i think franklin roosevelt wanted to uh, find out what was causing heart attacks i don't think i don't believe he was in a great health himself um i write about this on my blog i believe as well it's worth having a read um uh, the big fat myth i think it, it's titled but yeah so there's a lot of what i'm getting at is there's a lot of bad research out there that we wouldn't question if we didn't look into a bit further and hear con contrary opinions and I'll so I'll chuck your I'll chuck links to your blog in the show notes. Um, interestingly, on the mice subject, one thing that always um, tickles me a little bit is uh, foam rolling. And the studies from foam rolling basically saying that it relieves tension, it undoes muscle adhesions, however you want to phrase it. Interestingly, the first studies were done on mice, and basically the amount of pressure applied was super phys super physiological to a mouse, which basically means that it's more physiological pressure than they could ever yeah. physically apply themselves. And this relieves mm. tension. Now, if we take it to a human example, um, super physiological means that it's beyond anything that you could physically do yourself. So for example, if I back squat, I don't know, 180 kilos, something super physiological is going to be something way above my current or potential capability. And you mean to tell me that a tennis ball is super physiological at removing <laughs> muscular adhesions like and that's where ironically a lot of the research comes from mice um, and again in terms of reading conflicting arguments if any listeners are um still with us at this point uh read kelly star and all the stuff he says about foam rolling and then go and read quinn hennock and the stuff that he says about it not to say that one's right and one's wrong i'll leave you to read the books and make your own opinion but I've definitely gone through trends where I thought, yeah, foam roll and best things that sliced bread. Ironically, I was flicking through an old trading diary of mine uh, yesterday and I laughed because it said something like, didn't feel great, definitely need to do 15 minutes a day minimum foam rolling. But then again, not to knock on Kelly Starr, an incredibly clever and fantastic coach. But the his books, The Supple Leopard, all talks about mobility tools. And then you can buy overpriced mobility tools from his website. Um, and literally, by the way, just if you want, do want a mobility tool, like go and buy yourself a cricket ball, go and buy yourself a rounders ball, they're like two, three quid or however much it costs. Yeah. Don't, don't pay like 90 quid for a Theragun. Like, you know, but anyway, that's, uh, that's uh, besides the point. Um, if you would, I mean, we bloody hell, we've talked kind of pretty much everything. But if you could nail it down to just one key take home for listeners, if there's any way that you could uh, surmise boxing, PE, coaching, psychology. Um, and if you had one key take home for listeners, what would it be? Um, I think uh, one that springs to mind would be just have an open mindset to everything. Because 
I think quite often when you get into these fields, definitely in teaching, as much as they say, yeah, we're open to ideas, quite often you'll find out people aren't as open and receptive to new ideas. And so as much as um, you might have what could be a, a contrary idea to someone else, don't don't just get rid of it if they if they're not happy with it because again I'm sure you've seen this I've seen it when I've had a new idea in in when I've been teaching and someone someone doesn't agree with it and quite often they'll they'll try and talk you out of um, going through with it I think that's one of the worst things you can do especially when you're trying to develop and grow is you need to be able to try things and whether it's right or wrong or get whether it works or it doesn't needs to be able to try things and do it um, and of course you can use uh, feedback from peers colleagues etc to help you um, along the way but be open to new ideas be open to uh, alternative viewpoints because I think that's what we've really been speaking about throughout the whole conversation is we've constantly been open to different viewpoints and I don't think there's weakness in that a lot of people feel like you have to have a set opinion on everything and it needs to be that and it can't you know you can't be flimsy you can't be seen as flaky and I don't I think that's just perception and mindset I think people sometimes have that uh, mindset that if you're not saying one thing and one thing only then you're flaky and I don't think that's true so I think just being open constantly and I think that's how you develop and grow more is just being open to trying new things doing new things within your field to get better and again bring it right back to the start I think that's something that maybe you have to embed into your philosophy um, I know that's something I sort of embedded into mine and that definitely has helped me with developing people um, and developing the person as a whole so uh, that open mindset being growth again some people jump all over me for saying this but having a growth mindset um, there's a lot of value in that as much as it's been uh, criticized quite heavily recently I still believe there's a lot of value in uh, having a growth mindset and growth attributes and it's funny because uh, just on that subject I like the fact that you mentioned about not standing on one sort of opinion poll if you will and then leaving it there because as an example a current product that I'm working on for my Patreon subscribers is uh, a loaded mobility package and for example I'll explain that stuff like foam rolling it induces short-term changes in mobility and the research evidence basically isn't as strong as people like to think it is and therefore people might think oh well he's I don't know the anti-foam rolling guy but then you'd see me use foam rolling in some of my training sessions and you'd be like what the frick is going on but it's like no mm. I know this tool will alleviate pain whether it's psychological physiological uh but pain, probably a bad word, by the way. But anyway, um, and also it's the reason why I love doing podcasts because we can talk about the little intricacies and be like, well, in this scenario, like when you were talking about the blocks and random practice, it's not that random practice is better. It's not that foam rolling is worse than loaded mobility. It's just there are times and places for both tools, um, yeah. given context. And uh, almost to end with a TED Talk recommendation, uh, Dr. Mike Isretel, did a TED talk on nutrition and healthy eating in the 21st century. 
And he basically said that when people say stuff like, oh, well, I can find a study to support whatever I want with nutrition. You say coffee's good for you, I'll find one that says it's bad for me. And he basically said it's lazy science because basically you're cherry picking one study to support your opinion. But he said in science, there's no, this is bad, this is good. What, it, what you do have is something that once you've looked at as many studies as possible, which again, most people quite rightly don't probably don't want to do, but on the balance of the evidence presented, this is my current opinion, subject to change. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and that's what a good scientist would say and would do. Um, but yeah, it's just bring it back to what we were saying. There's so much out there, unfortunately, that isn't great. And in time, we find out about, it's a shame we had to wait so long and we've done so much damage in that huge period of time that could have potentially not occurred had there been more like that yeah couldn't agree more couldn't agree more and finally if uh people want to reach out to you as i said i'll put your um i'll put links to your blog in the show notes and as i said uh i may well be borrowing slash stealing some of your blogs with your permission to put on my www.p2pcoaching.co.uk yeah this plug um but I'll put the blogs in the show notes. But if people want to reach out to you and find out more um, about either your opinions, services you provide, etc., where can people reach out to you? Um, so I've got a Twitter that I, I use occasionally. I haven't used so much recently, but it would be at the World of Sport SPS. Uh, sorry, World of, World of SPCS. Um, so that's World of SPCS. Um, and then also my website that i use for blogs mainly is georgegreengrass.wordpress.com which obviously you can leave as well in the show notes perfect wonderful well uh what a fantastic chat and i may well end up splitting this into two parts depending on uh depending on how i feel and how long it has actually been but thank you very much for your time mate it's been a pleasure catching up with you yeah no i appreciate it thanks for that uh, todd uh, hopefully we can do it again sometime Absolutely, absolutely. Right, mate, I will see you later. Thank you very much. Right, see you later. Thank you for listening to episode 21 of the Platform to Perform podcast with myself, Todd Davidson, and today's guest, George Green. If you'd be so kind to do so, then please head over to iTunes to leave us a review. And if you want to go one better than that, and you feel like you're in a position to support the podcast, then please head over to www.patreon.com forward slash Todd Davidson p2p coaching where you'll gain access to my exclusive strength and conditioning content as well as programs for body weight training to increase muscle mass and size all my lessons for calisthenic kids and everything else that is exclusive to my patreon in next week's episode i'll be interviewing the tennis physio nick illick to talk about vicious rumors within physiotherapy and what we can do to help educate people who don't have a physiotherapy background. Catch you again in the next episode.